Well, good morning again. What a beautiful day, right? To focus on our Savior. This is a special day for more than one reason. One reason is it's going to be a long service, so the pot roast will be a little better done when you get home. <laughs> Obviously, something is special. And there are three ways in which our meeting this Lord's Day is so very special. First, we have gathered to worship the risen Lord Jesus. The love and adoration, along with the honor due him, has been expressed through songs from happy, redeemed faces. Our prayers have been offered in his name. Our scripture reading has focused on his glorious pronouncement that he, Jesus, God in the flesh, has come. Through faith in his name, we have the right to become children of God. That is why we say, hallelujah, what a savior. Secondly, we have come and gathered as two different groups of people. We represent two congregations seeking the will of the Lord, two assemblies under different names, two churches with different personalities and age groups. We have diverse forms of ministry, yet both are still based on Scripture. We operate and organize in different ways, but it doesn't matter because we've joined together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Third, we've gathered as different groups, yet in one body. Whether one or two or many congregations, whether many nationalities or languages, we're part of the body of Christ. We've been baptized into the very body of the Son of God. The mystery has been revealed, which is Christ has taken down the wall. There's no more Jew, no more Greek, no more hearing, no more deaf, no more Mongolians, Mangonians, excuse me, and Temple Terrasons. You get that? Mangonians and Temple Terrasons. It didn't go over as quick as people from Mango and people from Temple Terrace. There you go. We are simply sinners saved by grace. And that is why we say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Here at Grace Bible Church and at Fellowship, we've been going through book studies of Ephesians, and here you've been studying Luke, but today we're going to take a break from those expositions, the traditional exposition, and I've ordered a topical sermon around Jesus Christ because he's our focus. It's intended to be a systematic view of his beauty. We could never focus on him too much. So please allow me to take the preaching time this morning to glory in our Redeemer. Amen? Amen? That's why we're here. The very name Jesus, as you well know, means Savior. The word Christ means the Anointed One, the Messiah. Jesus is God's anointed Savior. But why this Savior? Why a Savior at all, you may ask. The established religions reject the idea of a need for a savior. Eastern religions teach karma, 
There's no need for a savior with them because they save themselves through life after life after life after life in the form of a creature or some ridiculous reincarnation. Islam offers salvation through martyrdom. Even the Catholic Church can only do so much. Their Savior doesn't do it all because you have to go to purgatory to finish the work. And of course, the non-religious need no Savior because even if they do believe there is a God, He simply just weighs their good works with their not-so-good works. Some people believe parts of the Bible that say God is holy, and through Adam we are sinners and do need a Savior. But why not just any Savior? Why not a good person, a prophet, a priest, a pious person, a philanthropist? Why not a politician? Well, that's an easy one. They haven't saved any people. In fact, they make things worse. Rulers rule, then they pass off the scene and they leave scandals as a memorial. Even the greatest of rulers has not saved mankind in a physical sense, much less a spiritual sense. God has put eternity in our hearts. Deep down, we know we need a Savior unlike us. The Creator, the Most High, the Holy God, has demanded nothing less than His righteous Justice can bear. Mankind in his most sinful, fallen state can only be redeemed by one who is in the most upright, perfect state. The Bible says insistently, emphatically, forcefully, and convincingly that salvation comes from outside this world. The Savior must be God himself, nothing less and no one less. You must understand the very idea of saving means that we need to be saved from something and from someone, and that something is God's wrath, and the someone is God himself who demands perfection and penalty. He is perfect in love. He is perfect in hate. The Lord's perfect justice demands that a righteousness be ours that comes from him alone. So the answer to the question, why a savior is God demands it. The second question, why this savior, Jesus, is answered by the fact that he is God and only God satisfies God. The fact that Jesus has satisfied God's wrath and he has come in the form of a man should compel us to love the Father and love the Son more and more. And we should all say, hallelujah, what a Savior. So let us be drawn again this morning to the person of Jesus Christ and see why he must be this Savior. First of all, is because of his very person. Brother Bill read from John, who tells us that Jesus, the Word, was with God. He was God. All things were created by him, and he makes us the very children of God. What a grand thought. How much clearer could John be in John chapter 1? 
Think about this. Only an eternal, infinite person can suffer the eternal, infinite wrath due a mortal sinner. The Trinity is a mystery, and it should be. Let me say it another way. Only an eternal being can absorb the eternal consequences of sin. No person compares to Jesus, the Messiah. He is all wise, as demonstrated by his speech. He is the creator, as demonstrated by his control of nature. His names reflect his beauty. He is the greater Moses. He is the branch. He is Shiloh, the great high priest, the lamb of God, the comforter, the counselor, governor, eternal father, prince of peace, savior, Jesus, Lord, Emmanuel. His name is and has been always the name above all names. Our calendar reflects his honor and impact. Napoleon Bonaparte said, if Socrates would enter the room, we would all rise and honor him. But if Jesus came in, we would fall down on our knees and worship him. His character is beyond dispute. He is the mysterious, perfect union that expresses and reflects God. And at the same time, he is man. While being 100% man, he is the fullness of the Godhead. He is the full form and nature of God. As a man, his external conditions were those of poverty, growing up in little Nazareth. Can you imagine the trips he went on, going to Jerusalem? As a young boy, pondering the prophetic writings, praying with his parents, using the Psalms to praise his Lord. Even in his public ministry, he was offered no permanent residence. He knew his time was short, so he touched the lives of the poor and the common, as many as he could. His religious life was one of dependence upon God. Now, if it could be said of anyone who ever lived, they did not need to lean on God, it could be said of him. But yet... We find him praying and leaning on his father. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed at the Mount of Transfiguration. As he selected the 12 in Gethsemane, he knew and used the scriptures. From the age of 12, he argued from them. God's words supported him. When tempted, he quoted Moses. When on the cross, he quoted the Psalms. He even had public worship. We see him in the synagogues all the time. And can you imagine how he would feel when he had to endure the many erroneous explanations of his own scriptures by the rabbis? How it must have pained him to put up with foolish sermons and traditions. The Jewish feasts, which were to point to him, were being used for personal gain. And yet, he, the feast himself, was going around doing good and ministering 
to others. He was a real man who paid attention to his own creation. He adored it even in the post-flood state. He drew illustrations from his mountains, his rivers, the seeds, and the sparrows. He observed ordinary people, drawing illustrations from patched clothes, wine bottles, workers in the field, children, weddings, and funerals. Our Savior had private interactions with his mother, with his friends, with the professors at the theological college in Jerusalem, and they were all amazed and blown away by his answers and questions. He was what most boys think they are, wiser than their parents. But he obeyed and respected them. Jesus was compassionate. At his death, he cared for his mother. He had close friends who he wanted around him even at the time of his death. He was the master teacher, devoting his time to his disciples. He was patient, devoting his time to his disciples. He rebuked them when the children came to learn from him. Instead of making them go away, he brought them near to his side. Such compassion has never flowed from anyone. Yet, at the same time, he blasted the hypocrites. He was undaunted by foolish questions. And he would answer them and lay the leaders low. He surrendered to the high priest and the Roman soldiers without plunging into politics. At the same time, he wept over Jerusalem. No doubt as a patriot as well as a savior. Unlike the pious, he is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And he would sit down with sinners who needed him. What a contrast to the proud and arrogant. Being humble, he could still claim, he who has seen me has seen the father. And in the same context, he could say, I am humble and meek and lowly. He stood in dignified silence when brought to trial, only answering to confirm his Messiahship. Only the God-man, Jesus, can combine humility with dignity, causing amazement and providing a perfect example for his followers. Think of the gentleness, the calmness that was in him when he awaited his own hour of crucifixion. So sensitive to pain that he prayed it would be removed. Nevertheless, in the next breath, he says, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Only this Savior exhibits perfect patience, sensitivity, care, combined with wisdom, courage, and the ultimate manliness, all in Jesus at the same time. Broadus makes this great observation. He says, many shrink back from reading the Gospels carefully because getting near to Jesus makes holiness seem so real and it makes their own sinfulness a matter of pain. That is being in the Gospels and in the presence of the Lord. So his very person gives us reason to say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
What about the promises of Jesus? He was promised before the world began. He was promised in the beginning to Eve. He was promised to Noah. He was promised to the patriarchs that he would bless all the nations. He was promised to Judah as a lion. He has promised to David as a suffering servant, a suffering savior. Psalm 22, listen. Bulls surround me. They open their mouth like lions. My bones are out of joint. My heart melts within me. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. They pierce my hands and my feet. And they cast lot for my clothes. The suffering Savior in Psalm 22. David is promised that the Messiah would be a king. 2 Samuel 7. You should know it well. God says through David I'll raise up a king. And establish his kingdom forever. Isaiah told of his death. In Isaiah 53, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Isaiah told of his resurrection. God, through Isaiah, said, I will allot the Messiah a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Now, the word resurrection isn't even there. But how else will Christ conquer and give the spoils to his people if there is no resurrection? So don't let anybody tell you the resurrection is not in the Old Testament. Isaiah told of his ministry. In Isaiah 61, Jesus quoted it for himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty and give comfort to all who mourn. That sounds like most of us. That's who he came for. Moses announced him as prophet. Joel acknowledged he would save. Nahum admired his good news to come. Micah predicted his birthplace. Hosea pronounced his call from Egypt. Daniel proclaimed his time of death. Jonah prophesied his burial. Zechariah even saw the donkey he would ride on. Malachi Malachi foretold the forerunner, John the Baptist, and Amos foretold the Messiah's kingdom. Who but Jesus fulfills these 300-plus prophecies from Moses to Malachi? No one but him, and that's why we say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. What about the purity of Christ? Even Jeremiah, chapter 23 Verse 6, speaking of the Messiah being the branch that God would use. He would save Israel and dwell securely with them. And his name would be called the Lord Jehovah, our righteousness. The Messiah is called Jehovah, our righteousness. Why? He was tempted by hunger in the wilderness. He was tempted by power in the temple. He was tempted by greed in the mountains. He was tempted as none other, yet without sin. Jesus was a child, but not naughty. He was a teen, but not wayward. He was a young adult, but not worldly. He was a man, but not wicked. He was persecuted and not weakened at all. 
from time to time we meet someone who claims sinlessness and then we talk to their spouse. <laughs> the Bible says no one doeth good except the Lord Jesus and him alone. The Pharisees found no guilt in his life. The ruling Pilate found no guilt in his death. The reluctant critic finds no guilt in him in the scriptures. The rejoicing Christian never finds any guilt in him at all. His ways and his words are perfect. He proclaimed his own purity. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. The Father proclaimed his purity when he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. His friends proclaimed his purity. Peter said, he is the lamb without spot and blemish. His beloved friend John said, there is no sin in him at all. His enemies pronounced his purity. The crowds came and they had no moral charge against him. All they could come up with was a charge that the very Lord of the Sabbath healed and fed on the Sabbath. What a joke. Even at his trial, Pilate could find no fault in this innocent man. The Gospels proclaim and portray his purity. Reverend Carnegie Simpson says this, The Gospels don't merely affirm his stainlessness, which is easy. We have in the Gospels what Jesus said in all circumstances, in public life and in private, in the sunshine of success, in the seeming failures, in the house of his friends and foes, in the Gospels, his life is seen and the great trials of death are seen. But we have a detailed picture of a man who never made a false step. Not one word that ought not to have been said came from his mouth. His model was faultless and he was perfect too. His purity is another reason we say, hallelujah, what a savior. How about his power? He's the creator. His name is above all names. Kings and warriors tremble at his name. He conquers evil, routing out demonic forces. The scepter will never depart from his hand. The book of Revelation says that he's the lamb 29 times. But don't be mistaken. While he is the lamb, he is the lion, the ruler, the judge. He meets out punishment and enacts the cruel wrath contained in the seals, bowls, and trumpets. He can create a molecule and dissolve a universe. He cares for the lily of the field while fanning the flames of hell. In the so-called modern world under the influence of evolution, there's a fading attraction to the, to the miracles of Jesus. It seems like the miracles are no longer the strength of Christianity, but a liability. But Peter never thought that. In his first ser sermon in the book of Acts, he said, you men of Israel, listen to this. This man is attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. He is powerful. Jesus didn't think his miracles were unimportant. He said in John 10, 37, If you don't believe the works of my Father, 
you won't believe in me, but if I do them, at least believe the works. The power of Jesus displayed in his miracles is a non-negotiable. They aren't just additions to nice stories. His miraculous power is part of the gospel. His might shows us we have confidence in salvation. His miraculous acts show that he is a mighty savior. The leopard was cleansed. The seas were calmed. The sick were cured and the dead were raised. But some would say, oh, no, that can't happen. Science says that that would break natural law. Well, they're right. It does. But who can disprove supernatural law? Before the Gospels were ever written, the faith of the Christians was based on the witness of thousands who saw his power. No Jew or Gentile ever denied what they saw. They only tried to cover it up. His power is another reason why we say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. He is a prophet, right? After, uh, excuse me, he, he, look at his priesthood. Why this Savior? Because of his priesthood. He is the priest. After the order of Melchizedek, a priest we find that has no ancestry, and that's Jesus. He was from the beginning, and he always will be. The Bible says that Jesus learned obedience. How did Jesus learn obedience? By laying aside his heavenly privileges, becoming like us. Every minute of every day was weighed down by a sin-sick world, and he dealt with it. He experienced physical pain, emotional pain, mental anguish. And in all points, he is able to intercede for us. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted, tempted like we are, but what? Without sin. You know the high priest in Israel would approach the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies every year. But this high priest, Jesus, is different. He made the ultimate, perfect offering once and for all. Never to be repeated. What a great high priest we have. Have you ever pictured Jesus interceding for you in heaven? Oh, glorious, blessed thought that is. It is fitting, Hebrews seven twenty six, for us to have a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners and exalted in the heavens. So his priesthood is another reason we say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. How about the piercing of the Messiah? You know he is our Passover. He's the Lamb of God that was killed, sacrificed, pierced, pierced for us. As Walverd says, he was like a king who temporarily puts on garments of a peasant while at the same time remaining king. And he is, does this for the purpose of being pierced for the iniquity of his people. For a righteous man, one would hardly die. But for the lowest, arrogant rebels like ourselves, our king was pierced and killed. Can you picture those yearly sacrifices of the lambs? The gruel scene, the gruesome thought of those pierced, slaughtered animals. And they portrayed the awfulness of sin. 
and its demands for punishment. You know, the lamb is a great picture of the harmlessness of Christ and his usefulness at the same time. What a useful Savior. Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And you know, Isaiah goes on and it says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, it pleased the Lord to literally pierce him. So his piercing is another reason why we can say, hallelujah, what a Savior. How about the propitiation that he offers in 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a big word. It simply means that God has that Christ has satisfied the eternal wrath and vengeance of God for us. It's been understood that propitiation is like the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was here. God's holy law was underneath it. The holy presence of God was above it. It was between the law and God. And Christ in the same way stands between us who have broken the holy God, the holy law of God, and the God himself. He is the mercy seat for us. He's taken our punishment. He has appeased God the one whose law we broke. John Stott says, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own righteous son. In Jesus, the wrath of God is satisfied. Mercy is extended. Reconciliation is made. Morris says, Jesus is himself the propitiatory offering, as well as the priest. Did you ever think about that? Christ is not only the priest, but he's the offering of the priest as well. And that's why we can say, hallelujah, what a Savior. How about the proof of Jesus Christ? It's through his resurrection. He is alive. He is active. Fred Beck said this, the stone at the tomb of Jesus was a pebble to the rock of ages inside. The resurrection is the core of the gospel. Without it, Jesus is not who we think he is. It's the focal point of 13 of the early sermons in the book of Acts. It's proof of his messiahship. Jesus himself said this is proof when he used Jonah as a sign that he would burst forth from the grave on the third day. Without it, the resurrection, the proof of Jesus' messiahship, there is no salvation. There's no inspiration for life. It's not a ghostly story or some fiction. All of those stories, you know what? They're written the same way and they sound alike. But the story of Jesus' resurrection is different. It wasn't caused by some psychological or natural phenomena. If so, there'd be many stories like it. But this story of his resurrection is different. It's a unique story. Believed by many people who saw him and testified to his resurrection even before the Gospels were written. The supreme proof 
of the resurrection of Christ is the resurrection of Christianity. We're here because he's changed lives. The day of worship was changed. So convincing were the witnesses and the reports of his resurrection, we can't find any accounts that negate it. Only cover-ups. It is proof that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And the resurrection of Jesus is not only proof that he's the Messiah, but it's proof that we'll be raised with him. And that is why we can say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Why this Savior? Because of the pardon that he gives. Jeffrey Wilson says, He who was the Son by nature took the form of a servant willingly so that we who were by nature the servants of sin might be adopted as God's sons. Consider his parables, which speak of the joy at finding one lost, lost sheep, one lost coin, one lost son. And we stand in awe of his willingness to forgive. Think of Peter, who was warned of his sin and yet embraced with love following his repentance. Recall his cry to the Father when they were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Take heart in his words when he says, Come to me and I will never, ever, no way and no wise, cast you out. His forgiveness removes the penalty of sin and gives us the power to live. That's why he was sent to the world to save sinners. And that pardon that Jesus gives is why we say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. What about the peace of Christ? Ephesians 2.14 He himself is our peace. You recall, before your salvation, you were an enemy of God. Better yet, you were God's enemy. He was your enemy. He was after your hide. And at the same time, stretching out a hand of mercy in his son. Jesus made peace exist between us and the Father. And now we can come boldly before his throne. He purchased our peace with God. He himself is our personal peace with God. Please grasp this. Jesus doesn't just give peace. He is peace. His death and resurrection have provided the same peace that existed in the garden. God no longer is against us. We should no longer quarrel with him. Our reconciliation with God extends to our peace with each other. Oh, how we long for the day when we will see the peaceful face of Jesus and his people, the ones we couldn't get along with down here. Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not like the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be fearful. Exchange that with the peace of Christ. And his peace is another reason. We can say, Man, you're not saying it loud enough. How about the portion of Jesus? His inheritance. We are children Heirs also, 
Romans 8, 17. Heirs of God and fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, He is our inheritance. Scarcely do we ponder what we have in Jesus. God has said, all that is His is ours. He is our truth for guidance. He is our wisdom for living. He is our light for life. He is our refuge from Satan. He's a treasure for the poor. He's a supply to the needy. He is strength for the weak. He's a shield for protection. He is a song in the night. He is honor for the persecuted. He is holiness for the unrighteous. He is hope for heaven. And he is the temple of our permanent dwelling. The most pious, godly, spirit-filled believer who meditates day and night on the scriptures can't even begin to fathom what he has in Christ. So because he is our portion, we can say, What about the presence of Jesus Christ? He is with us. Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the weekend. No, the end of the age. For life and ministry, he is near. The God-man through his spirit is always with us. His word, his wisdom is always with us. His power always keeps us. As a mediator, his righteousness never leaves us. By his spirit, his grace never leaves us. As comforter, his joy constantly streams to us. As king, he's always ruling over us. And the Psalms are just chuck full with the awareness of God's presence. I wonder what David would do if he had the New Testament. Jesus makes it clear in Hebrews 13, 5. Be content with what you have. Why? You remember the rest of that verse? Because I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So his presence is another reason we say... What about the pictures of Jesus in the Bible? He's our bread, sustaining us for life. He's the door, opening the way to eternal life. And the Father, Jesus, is the door out of our prison house to the very house of God. He is the way that leads to eternal life. He is the vine, the source of our eternal fruit. He is the light, the very radiance of God's eternal life bringing us out of darkness. Pictures like this give other reasons we can say. And you know what? Jesus is peculiar. Like all these P words, right? <laughs> these words begin with P on your outline. And Jesus is peculiar in the sense that there is none like him. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Elwin McQuaid says this, Jesus goes beyond time and delivers a drama that only deity can produce. The only tragedy is we fail to celebrate it. There's no other religion that calls on its people to follow a redeemer. You know that? He is the brightness of God's glory. To which of the angels did he ever say these things? God 
none, only Jesus. He alone demands worship. He alone is to be desired, to be dwelt upon, to be depended upon, to be delighted in, to be declared, and to be followed. So his peculiarity is another way and reason we should say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now we're closing it up here. We've heard so much about Jesus, and you've heard the Scripture ring in your ear. Hopefully you're familiar with it, that backs all of these truths up. But Jesus wants to be personal. He wants to be your personal Lord and Savior. The birth of the Messiah. Think about this. The birth of Jesus, God's Son, has been reduced to a meager pile of wrapping paper on the floor for Christmas. The death of Christ has been turned into a mere example of humility in a movie. The resurrection of Christ has been turned into a messy basket of plastic Easter eggs. The miraculous power of the Lord Jesus has been turned into mythical stories. And the sure coming of our Savior has been turned into a maybe. Nothing could be so cold and so distant and so impersonal. Jesus came to be a personal Savior. He is the Lord of glory. He demands worship. Worship from the heart that has been warmed and gripped by these truths that we've been preaching this morning. Has the Spirit of God pressed on your heart all that we said? Do you believe the scriptures that speak of him? Do you believe he suffered for you? Have you repented of the sin that hurts him? Are you led by the spirit he sent? Have you sought the forgiveness he wishes to give? Are you saying, oh, he would never forgive me? Well, stop it. He will forgive you. He can't lie. He said, if you come to me, I won't cast you out. Don't make the same mistake that Pilate made. He loved the crowds who rejected Jesus. He lost a great opportunity. He listened to his head and not his heart. He loathed the testimony of Jesus in the scriptures. You better make him your personal savior today. If you meet me and forget me, you've lost nothing. But if you've met Jesus and forgot him, you have lost everything. If Jesus is worth anything, he is worth everything. And for those of you that do know him as your Savior, use these truths to strengthen you this week. Trust in him when you're tempted to sin. Rely on him when you're rolled into surgery. Depend upon him when you're depressed by circumstances. Seek him when you're surrounded by sinners. Wait on him when your ways are unsure. Obey him when others forsake him. The truth about Jesus is not a concept. The truth about Jesus is a person. Just trust this personal Savior today. Oh, he wants to save. And that's why we can say, Now, why this Savior? One more thing. Because he's the prophetic Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If he is your savior, if you've trusted in him, fallen at his knees, sing these songs with joy that we sang today, you believe in him now. 
and you should. Believe in him in this life. Be like him in this life. And then be with him in the next. Because the Bible says he's coming again. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Can you imagine when Jesus comes and every eye looks and says, wow, there's Jesus. What's Ken doing with him? You'll all be with him if you believe in him. And they'll say, look at the glorious Savior and his glorious people. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says that everyone will bow their knees before the God-man that we've described this morning. Some willingly and some will be forced to bow their knees. This promised, pure, powerful, pardoning Savior desires to be your priest, your peace, to be in your presence and to come again for you. As Philip Henry said, if Christ is not all in all with you, you are nothing at all to God. If Christ is not all to all, all in all to us, then we are nothing at all to God. May that never be. His prophecy. He's coming again. Trust him today. There's. Okay. Let's just say. Hallelujah. What a savior. He is the savior. Because he really does save. Father help us to see Jesus. Take my feeble sermon and use it for your glory in the sanctification of your people and the salvation of others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.